Are we ready? Okay, awesome. I bet that's on the recording. <laughs> that's going to be fun. Okay, so this morning Leah texted me and, and I wanted to share this with you guys because um, I think I probably understand um, because of, of the parts of her story of her life that she shared with me that because she's had to miss so much because of her health issues that there's some, some guilt that kind of lingers in that. And I wanted to just point out what God's been speaking today. I can't read it there because it's too washed out. But it says, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Um, you know, I, I texted Leah this morning and told her that I think that she's been handling all of this so well because she's been incredibly authentic and vulnerable with, with what's going on. And, and it's not often fun to share medical issues that are happening in your life. Those are a little bit scary sometimes, especially stuff she's been dealing with. And so I just wanted to, to say as a word of encouragement to her, but also to you guys, that when we share stuff like that, it's significant for the body. I told her this morning, it has been good for us to walk that journey with her. And I appreciate her sharing that stuff with us. And I want her to understand that, that we love her dearly. And we are so grateful for the fact that she's willing to serve so well. So I just wanted to throw that out this morning um, before we got started. But as we kick off today, I want to share some things with you that God spoke this week uh, that were really good for me, and I think that, that it will be good for you as well. Um, I shared with you guys last week that in the midst of a, the craziness of the previous week that I had messed up, in my mind, pretty big, and it hit me really, really hard. I lashed out at someone in anger, and not only was it wrong, but I was a horrible example of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And you're going to see how that ties in in a little bit. But, and I'll be honest with you, it's been a long time since I felt as bad about something as I felt about the way I acted. Um, it took me a few days to get over it. And still, even after I felt like I had, that shame was still kind of lingering. You know how those things will just kind of creep up out of nowhere and you're like, man, I still feel bad about that. And I want you to understand that I understood in the moment when I asked for forgiveness from the person that I lashed out against and when I asked God that I knew that I was forgiven. But it doesn't mean that the, the consequences of my sin were not still in my life. You know, we've talked about that a lot over the last couple of weeks. Um, but this last week in Life Group, our Life Group is going through uh, Gentle and Lowly, which if you haven't read it, there's copies right here. Uh, that's all we got left, so there's three. If you want one, get it. But in chapter 21, the author said something, and as I was reading it Monday morning, um, one of the things that he said just struck me, and I wanted to share it with you because it was significant for me. He said, when you, do, when you sin, do a thorough job of repenting. Rehate sin all over again. And I can assure you I had done a thorough job of repenting. I'd had a lot of conversations with God and with the person about the sin. But it was that second sentence that got me. It occurred to me, he said, rehate sin all over again. It occurred to me in that moment, the Holy Spirit pointed out that I don't hate all sin the way I hated the way I acted that day. I shared that with Life Group Monday night. And that was significant for me. Because I know in my own life, and the same is probably true for you, that there are some sins that we put in that category of really, really bad. And then there are other sins that we put in this separate category that we can justify and we can feel okay about because it's not that bad, right? And what I've been asking God for myself this whole week is that He will teach me, that He'll do something in my heart to make me hate sin, all sin in my life, the way I hated, the way I acted the other day. Um, for me, that is going to be a significant change in the way that my life looks. And I share, you, I share that with you this morning because the author's been writing to the church to try to keep them from sinning 
specifically in, from turning away from their faith. And I think that getting us to a place where we hate our sin is what God's been trying to do in the church that these letters are written to, but also in our own lives. God wants us to feel the same way about the sin in our lives that he feels about the sin in our lives. Now, don't be mistaken. God loves us. We see that in the work that Jesus did for us on the cross. God loves us in the midst of our sin. Scripture is very clear about that. But he doesn't like our sin. It pulls us away from him. It separates us from him. Last week, we compared the experiences of, of the, the Israelites and then the experiences of the, the readers of this letter or the New Testament church. Um, their experiences of God on Mount Sinai versus Mount Zion. On Mount Sinai, God revealed himself and, it, and the revelation of God and his bigness and his glory caused people to fear him. His purpose was to give the law and to let Israel have his perspective on his holiness and on their unrighteousness. You see the theme here? God's revealing himself so that they can see their sin. When he gives the law, the law is not given to save them. The law is given to reveal what is sin and what's not sin. God wants us to see that in our own lives. He wants us that when we sin, that it's blatantly obvious that we know it's a sin. It's cut and dry. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to guess. So that then we can deal with the sin or he can deal with the sin. On the contrary, Jesus brought about a different mountaintop experience. Rather than fear, he brought joy because he takes care of our sin. He's poured out on us his righteousness. So that now when God looks at us, he no longer sees our sin, but he sees the perfection of Christ. And now instead of being fearful of God because of what Jesus has done, we run to the Father in joy because of Jesus. We can approach him having dealt with our sin on our own and do that in fear. Or we can run to him letting Jesus deal with our sin and do it with joy. If we've done it ourselves, we must approach with fear because we will be found guilty. We will be judged and our sin will be held accountable to us. However, if we let Jesus take care of that sin problem, when we approach God with joy and confidence because Jesus is taking care of the sin. I ended last week with a challenge that we cannot hide the best part of ourselves from the people in our lives. The best part of us is the part that's being conformed into the nature of Jesus, right? And when we hide that part of ourselves, we're hiding the very best part of ourselves from the people in our lives. Today, as we begin this last chapter in the book of Hebrews, we're going to see the author give a very similar challenge to the church. We're going to see him exhort the church to live the way that Jesus lived. In living like Jesus, we get to experience kingdom life here on earth. Read with me verses 1 through 6, and then we're going to look at five distinct ways that he's encouraging the church. So, starting in verse 1, Hebrews chapter 13. Let brotherly love continue. Don't neglect to show hospitality, for by doing this, some have welcomed angels as guests without knowing it. Remember those in prison, as though you were in prison with me, and the mistreated as though you selves were suffering bodily. Marriage is to be honored by all in the marriage bed kept undefiled because God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterers. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you or abandon you. Therefore, we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? So, the first thing that the author of Hebrews challenges the churches to do in this last chapter is to continue loving one another. And I, I want to I challenge you, don't be fooled by how simple that sounds. 
Let's look at a couple of cross-references to see what's involved in this challenge to continue in brotherly love. Look with me at Romans chapter 12, verse 10. Paul says this, Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Take the lead in honoring one another. Take the lead in honoring one another. You may recall Glenn teaching on this a few years ago. Consider what it means to take the lead in honoring one another. As Christ followers, we are to love, not in response to how we are loved by others, but to take the lead in loving well. We set the bar on what it means to love by loving other people as Jesus did. Spoiler alert, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about that in the next part of, or in the rest of this year. We'll talk more about that later. But to use myself as an example of what not to do, when I lost my temper a few weeks ago, I was not loving as Jesus loved. In fact, I was doing the opposite, huh? of what I was supposed to do. Y'all see that little connection there? I didn't even know that was coming. I met anger with anger, and Jesus teaches that we're to meet anger with love. There's a tendency in our culture to respond in the same tone or tendency as someone else, right? When someone raises their voice at you, you raise your voice to match it. But Paul is telling us that there's another way to do this. Paul's telling us in Romans that we're to be the ones that set the tone by setting it by loving one another in a way that honors the person that we're loving and in a way that honors God. Peter expresses a similar challenge in 1 Peter 1.22. He says, Since you have purified yourselves by your obedience to the truth so that you show sincere brotherly love for each other from a pure heart, love one another constantly. Not only are we to love to the degree that Jesus did, but we're to do it constantly. I want you to hear me say this. There are no days off when it comes to obeying Jesus' command to love one another. Look at what Jesus said in John chapter 13, verses 34. He said, I give you a new command. Love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Jesus' whole life revolved around loving other people. And he did it in a specific way. He loved others by abiding in the Father, seeing what the Father saw, and doing the things that the Father has told him to do. By doing this, he revealed God's true nature to the world. Jesus did this by loving everybody that he came in contact with. And it may frighten you to think about the fact that there's no days off when it comes to loving other people, but we're called to love to a level that Jesus did. But it's only frightening when we consider doing that in our own power. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 uh, John says, dear friends, let us love one another because, God, because love is from God and everyone who has been born of God and knows God. God is love. And so if our, our goal is to love people and we're trying to do it on our own power, we're going outside of the relationship of the Father. But when we're abiding in Jesus, when we're, our focus every day is to be like Him, is to listen to Him, to see what He sees, to hear what He hears, the Father is going to love people through us. And so it's not in our own power. It's not in our own ability. It will not feel exhausting because God's doing it through you. You get to be a part of that experience. And it's through our abiding relationship that we are used by God to love the world in the same way that as Jesus abided in the Father, He loved the world. I've been using this word abide a lot today, and I had Leah bring some copies. If you don't know what it means to abide, we have a book for that. Okay, this is not, I'm not selling anything today. These are free, but I just saw that, looked down there and saw them. We're going to talk about abiding some more later today as well. But it's the power of God on display, 
not our own when we love people. The second thing he says is to show hospitality. Verse 2 says, don't neglect to show hospitality. For by doing this, some have welcomed angels as guests without knowing it. This is a lot bigger. I don't know about you guys. When I think about hospitality, the thing that comes into my mind is how you treat people when they come in your home, right? I don't know if that's the same for you, but I'm a Southern guy. That's just immediately what clicks in my mind. But it's bigger than that. Hospitality is about taking care of people. And it's the natural response to loving someone. When you love somebody, you take care of them. As, as you guys know, we call him Big Luke. Um, Wilson was in town uh, two weeks ago, staying in a hotel while he was there. And don't knock me for making him stay in a hotel. I offered him our couch. He said he'd rather stay in a hotel room. That's not the point I'm trying to make. The try- point I'm trying to make is he was here for a week. And so what do we do for people that we really love here in the South? We cook for them, right? That's what I do. So the whole week he was here, just about every night, we cooked a big meal. He came over, he ate till he was full as a tick, and then we sent him home with the biggest Tupperware we could find so he'd have food for lunch the next day. And I'm not sharing you that to pat myself on the back, but I love Luke. And so one of the ways that I show that is by taking care of him. I didn't do that because I'm expected to. I didn't do that because I have to. I didn't do that just because I like to cook. I did it because I love him. How many of you guys, when you go home to your parents' house, know that there's going to be a good meal waiting on you? That's a pretty common thing. And the reason that parents do that is because they love their kids. When we're abiding, our natural response to those that are in need is going to be to help them. I told you earlier I was going to address Kara's testimony this morning. This week, uh, Friday, I was driving and I was listening to a new book, and it was about how um, how to love like Jesus. And as I was reading through that book, Kara and Carrie came to my mind because Carrie had shared that, that, that experience with me Wednesday night that Kara shared today. And I was thinking about them because we've got a lot of families in our church that have done foster care, but they're the only family who had to go through what I think all foster parents are scared of the most. And that's having to bring the child back to their biological parents. And Carrie and Kara have done such a good job of weathering that storm, of being vulnerable about what's going on in their lives and sharing their emotions with that. Then they've also got Jaden and DeAsia, their neighbors. A lot of you have met them, some of you have not. Who You can go to Carrie and Kara's house just about any time and Jaden and DeAsia are going to be around. And they have done such a good job of loving those two kids. And that, that love for Alyssa, that love for Jaden, that love for DeAsia is not just because Carrie and Kara are good people. They are. It's because Jesus is working in their lives and their natural response to these kids that God has put in their life is to love them well. He makes a a comment in this verse about we, we need to be careful about how we treat others because we may be entertaining angels. That comes from Genesis chapter 18. Or this is one example of it. Look at me, um, uh, look at with me at verses one through eight. So the Lord appeared to Abram at the Oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance of his tent during the heat of the day. He looked up, he saw three men standing near him. When he saw them, he ran to the entrance of the tent to meet them, bowed to the ground, and said, My Lord, if I have found favor with you, please do not go past your servant. Let a little water be brought that you may wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. I will bring a bit of bread so that you may strengthen yourselves. This is why you have passed your servant's way. Later you can continue on. Yes, they replied, do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent and said to Sarah, Quick, knead three measures of fine flour and make bread. Abraham ran to the herd and got a tender choice calf. He gave it to the young man 
who hurried to prepare it. Then Abraham took curds and milk as well as the calf that he had prepared and set them before the men. He served them as they ate under the tree. Abraham is known as a man who loved God. And upon seeing these three strangers, his heart goes out to them. And, and think about the setting. Abraham is, what did it say he was in? He was in a tent, right? Think about how Abram, you remember the story of Abraham and Lot, and they had to separate from one another because their flocks were so big. They were nomadic people. They didn't live in a city. They lived in the middle of nowhere. They followed the grazing grounds with their flocks, and they set up their tents where the, where the grass was good, and they let their flocks graze there until they grazed it down. Then they pick everything up and they move again. So here's Abraham out in the middle of nowhere, and he sees these three men approaching, and his heart goes out to them. They're in the middle of nowhere. He knows they're hungry. He knows they need shade. He knows they're probably thirsty. They're filthy from their travels, and so he takes care of them. And we know the rest of that story that those men end up telling him at the end of that story that his wife who's been barren her whole life is going to have a child. And God speaks through that. That's what this passage in Hebrews is pointing to. Again, taking care of others is the response. Not of obligation, but of a person who loves God. Look at Matthew chapter 25 verses 31 through 40. This is Jesus. He says, when the Son of Man comes into his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another, just as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. He will put his sheep on the right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on the right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did I see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did I see you a stranger or take you in or without clothes and clothes you? When did you, we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. When we're loving and caring for others, it's bigger than just meeting their needs. When we're loving and caring for others, we are loving and caring for Jesus as well. All people are made as image bearers of God and they are loved by Him. And when we care for those people as God cares for them, we are loving God. Do you see how that works? This is bigger than just meeting simple needs. It's about how we relate to one another and how that affects how we relate to God. Point number three is have sympathy for those in trouble. Look at verse three. He says, remember those in prison as though you were in prison with me and the mistreated as though you yourselves were suffering bodily harm. This is a very similar point to number two. It's about taking care of one another, but specifically here in prisons in the time of the Roman occupation, prison was quite different than it is today. Even their most basic needs of food and water were not supplied by those that were keeping them prisoners. And so they literally were depending, their lives depended on the people that loved them to provide food and water for them. And it's quite possible based on some things that I read this week that the author of Hebrews was in jail while he was writing this. And so it's a little hint, hint, hey guys, don't forget about me over here. It's also possible that many of the church members had been or were in prison at the time of this writing. And this exhortation just wasn't a one-off because the author had a soft spot for prisoners. 
The threat of imprisonment was a normal part of being a follower of Jesus at this time. And the author is encouraging the church not to forget their brothers and sisters that were being persecuted and calling them to act boldly in the face of that persecution. And we are called to care for others in their need. It's kind of where the rubber hits the road. It's the moment where we ask ourselves, do I really believe what I say I believe about who Jesus is? I'm going to really do the things that he's called me to do because what the author of Hebrews is challenging the churches to do is to think about the fact that these people are in prison because they're followers of Jesus. And he's asking other followers of Jesus to go to the prison to care for them, to purposely put themselves in harm's way for the sake of someone else. That's big. Throughout our lives, we're going to have opportunities to help others who are not able to help themselves. And if we're not abiding daily, we're going to either ignore the opportunity or we're going to flat out miss seeing it because our focus isn't on walking with God. It's on ourselves. We talk about this, we'll talk about this more in the future, but one of the things that was distinctive about Jesus is that he seemed to see what other people did not see. He saw those that were in need. He saw those that people ignored, like really saw them. If we're to love like Jesus, we need to begin to not only see what he sees, but to be driven by love into action, just like he was. Point number four, and I'm going to keep this short and vague because we got a lot of little ears, but maintain purity, okay? Honoring our spouses and our relationship with them is of utmost importance. How we handle these relationships has an impact not only on yourself, but on the church as a whole. And a brief scan of headlines in that realm will very quickly reveal that to you if you're not sure about it. Okay, we're going to move right along. Point number five, be content with what God has blessed you with. Verse five, keep your life free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you or abandon you. God's proven time and time again in my life and in many of your lives as you have testified that he is more than capable of taking care of us, of providing for us. Our church finances are a wonderful example of that. God has shown over and over and over again what he can accomplish through this small body. We're able to operate on such a slim budget and give away as much as we do because God has taken care of us. He's provided this whole facility this building, the gym, all the land that we have, and we don't owe a thing on it. And it's because of that that we're able to give over 50% of our budget away in ministry to this community and around the world. God has, Scripture says he owns a, the cattle on a thousand hills. That means he has a lot of money. Just a side note, don't ever ask a, a, a rancher how many cows he has because that's like asking him to open his wallet, okay? But we can ask God to open his wallet. He's got all of it. Glenn and I were talking this week. He's, God's put huge plans out there for the network, and he's not sure how it's going to get paid for, and he's getting really stressed out about it. And then God reminded him, hey, I, I'm the one paying for this. I got it. Okay, we'll just keep moving forward. But God can take care of us. He's given us so much, and there always exists this temptation to lean on our own ability to provide. When we try to take back the reins of our finances, it causes us to lose focus, not only on our relationship with God, but on the work that he's called us to do. Because now instead of focusing on abiding in him, we're focused on trying to make sure that we pay for everything. 
to make sure that all the resources that we need are in place. As Americans, we're driven by the need to have more and to do more. And there's nothing inherently wrong with wanting more, but when it becomes the focus of our lives, it becomes the part of our life where we put all of our brain power. That's the place where Jesus is supposed to be. Again, we see the need for abiding as we spend time with God each day and let Him direct how we live and how we spend. We're going to be focused on God and not on the stuff. Being content also frees us up to be willing to give as the need arises because we're not trying to hoard it all for ourselves. Our focus is on God and how do we love the people around us. And as God says, spend this amount of money, give this resource away, devote your time to this. You say, okay, no big deal. God's got it. All of these things that the author addresses in the first part of chapter 13 require that we take the focus off of ourselves and put it on to Jesus. In doing so, we're able to interact with the world in the same way that Jesus did. Getting outside of ourselves and living in God's kingdom while we're here on the earth reveals to the watching world who God is. After these five reminders, the author closes with this thought on our personal lives with a reminder that we cannot do this on our own and we shouldn't try to. As the members are hearing these things, there can be no doubt that they are concerned with what, might, what this might cost them. They're living in fear of persecution and to live in that way, the author describes is no doubt going to bring attention to them. We talked about that last month with Callie, right? Do y'all remember that? When we live and love like Jesus, it's going to draw attention to us. Sometimes that attention is going to feel good. Sometimes it's not going to feel good. But the author closes out this section with a reminder that we're not alone in this. Look at Hebrews chapter 13, verse 6. It says, Therefore we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Church, we can live with that same confidence. As we live like Jesus, as we reorient our lives so that we can love and care for one another the way that Jesus did, we can count on the fact that people are going to notice that. Like I said a while ago, sometimes that's going to feel really good. And you're going to have some awesome conversations. And sometimes when you live that way, people don't like it. And they're going to say and do things that are not pleasant. For the church, think about what I was talking about a while ago. This whole letter was written to encourage them to not walk away from their faith. And that fear that was driving them, as David talked about earlier, that fear that was driving them was the fear of persecution, the fear of not having enough, the fear of people not liking them. And all of that can be handled by Jesus. We see in Scripture over and over and over again, the author is quoting several different passages when he says, the Lord is my helper and I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Because God's more powerful than any of us. Sometimes the attention's going to feel good. Sometimes it won't. But most of the time, you're not going to know how somebody's going to respond until you act. And when the fear approaches, because I know how that is for me in my life, when God gives me a task, and I say, okay, I know I'm supposed to do this thing, the first thing I'll get worried about is how is the person going to respond? And when that fear approaches, we can be reminded that we're not alone. And if you're abiding in Christ, He will be with you and He'll be all that you need. So don't be so concerned with the way people are going to respond. You just be you and be God's and let that be enough. How people respond is not up to us and it's not a reflection on how well you did. 
it's a reflection on how they're responding to the Holy Spirit. Success is found in abiding, not in the responses that we get. As followers of Jesus, living in the kingdom of God while we're here on earth, let's spend our time focusing on abiding in Jesus and letting him lead us. Let's pray together. Jesus, this week you've spoken very clearly to me and hopefully to the church about our need to to rely on you, to walk with you, to let you teach us to love people the way that you love them. Father, as we move forward in this next week, as we get to work on Monday, Father, I ask that you give us opportunities to see your work, that we would spend time with you that morning preparing our hearts, getting ready for the day, looking and watching for your activity, and then being willing to move and to respond and to act in the ways that you would have us do so. Father, every week we share these great testimonies of the activity in our lives from simple things like praying over a two-stroke motor to getting through a busy week to dealing with children, foster care. Father, week after week, moment after moment, you reveal your goodness to us and that you're pursuing us so that we can know you and so that the world can know you. Father, I ask for myself and for my brothers and sisters in this room that we would be motivated by your love to pursue you and to pursue others. Jesus, I ask these things in your name. Amen.